Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal is to find exceptional people that are doing amazing things in their fields and asking questions and hopefully get a, uh, that's a good question, you know, comment, which means I'm onto something and uh, bring that knowledge to the listeners. So today I have uh, Erica Marie Hartman. Uh, she's an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northwestern University. And we're talking about uh, her work, which I won't give away. I'll, I'll ask her about. So, Erica, thanks for coming. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, if you would tell me about your work, it has a lot of uh, long words that comprise what it's about. And I, I was afraid of stumbling and bumbling <laughs> trying to explain it. So it's better that you do it. Sure. So I'm... Um... I'm really interested in how microbes and chemicals interact, like in a nutshell. And one of the most interesting types of interactions, at least in my mind, is the interactions between antimicrobial chemicals and the development of antibiotic resistance. So basically the idea is that we design chemicals that are supposed to kill microbes and microbes figure out ways to um, survive. And so I think that that interaction is really, really interesting. Well, when you talk about interactions of chemicals and microbes, that's a huge expanse. Um, do you focus more on organic molecules or drugs, like small molecule drugs and how they affect bacteria? Like, have you narrowed it down? Yeah, the, the short answer is that I haven't. We have all kinds of diverse projects going on that are just like really fun. Um, but by and large, I think most of our work focuses on organic antimicrobials. Um, just because there's a lot of them and they're really widespread. Um, although we are also increasingly interested in uh, nanomaterials and especially metals. Yeah, I've heard that bacteria produce uh, you know, antimicrobial substances to attack other bacteria. They produce lysine. Um, you know, then the, they'll, they'll take in genetic material from other bacteria to create pumps to pump out things that may be toxic to them. I mean, they have a whole range of responses from what I've seen. But what have you observed that's really amazing to you? Yeah, so I think, um, so a lot of our work has focused on indoor environments. And what's really interesting is that um, we design these environments. So we sort of, we control how these environments look and what they're made out of and how they operate. Um, But we don't necessarily think about the microbes inside of those environments. And so a lot of what we've been looking at recently is how our use of specific chemicals can impact the microbes in those environments. And we have seen that, for example, where we find more triclosan, which is um, an organic antimicrobial that was pretty widely used in hand soap, but it's since been banned. Um, So in indoor environments where we see more triclosan, we see more antibiotic resistance in the microbes in those environments. Um, But what's really interesting is that the resistance that we see doesn't necessarily correspond to triclosan. Um, And so that suggested to us that there's just this sort of general like uh, stress response 
um, that includes, for example, sharing that genetic uh, material, so like sharing antibiotic resistance, um, even if it doesn't confer a direct advantage, or maybe we just don't understand the advantage that it confers. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to understand what's happening and then hopefully design and operate buildings in a way that's maybe a little more advantageous for us. What if you um, look at a particular room or area as, and you sample the bacteria and you call that its normal microbiome, mm -hmm. and then you clean the room where you put stuff in there, you know, again, it goes through a cleaning cycle or a cycle where people are in it or activity happens. Mm -hmm. And then you sample surfaces and then you look at that new quote unquote, I'm calling it a microbiome. Yeah. And you see how that changes. And perhaps that would be a good model on what to do or what not to do in certain situations, you know, what to clean with, uh, to open a window or not, uh, how to use a room, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, um, that's sort of the, the key outcome that I would like to be able to sort of share with the world right now is, what to clean, how, how frequently, um, because right now a lot of our cleaning is just sort of based on this idea that like all microbes are bad, but that's not true at all. Um, the vast majority of microbes are, if, if not like good, um, at least sort of neutral, <laughs> they don't really impact us. Um, mm -hmm. And by cleaning so aggressively and using antimicrobial chemicals, it's possible that we're actually making the situation worse. So if we go back to thinking about that antibiotic resistance thing, because antibiotic resistance is actually one of the biggest um, global public health threats right now. Um, and so there are a lot of things that we can do to prevent antibiotic resistance. Potentially one of them is cleaning a little bit more conscientiously um, and thinking more specifically about what we clean and what we clean with. Well, when, you know, when you clean, I would think it does like one of two things. One is that it, it may kill the bacteria that are there that are not harmful, like you said, mm -hmm. and allow for harmful ones to come there and take prevalence or precedence, you know, mm -hmm. or it could, uh, um, I guess, you know, threaten or stress the existing bacteria that are there that, again, may not be harmful and cause them to uh, develop resistance and maybe then become pathogenic or then you know, not be cleanable. Right. Yeah. And so, like... The fact of the matter is you're never going to get rid of all of the microbes. There are people who try really, really, really hard. And I'm not talking about just like extreme germaphobes. I mean, like NASA works really, really hard to clean all of the microbes off of the stuff it sends into space because they have this planetary protection mandate that like if we find life on Mars, how will you know that it was on Mars before you got there? Or did you just bring Earth life with you, right? Mm. So they go to extraordinary lengths to try to remove microbes. Um, but the answer is you will never get rid of all of the microbes. And so there will always be some microbes left over. And exactly, we should think about um, how are we selecting for those microbes? So are we selecting for pathogens? Are we selecting for organisms that are more difficult to clean? Um, and basically, if that's the case, what, why don't we think about what we want to select for? <laughs> You know, and so thinking about not just trying to get rid of everything, but accepting the fact that we're not going to get rid of everything and thinking about what we want to keep. So are you focusing on, you know, bathrooms, let's say, or like what's your focus and, you know, what, what do we want in a given room? What don't we want? Yeah, so that's a great question. We don't actually have a great answer for that quite yet. Um, we 
certainly know what pathogens look like, right? There are some classics. The you know CDC has a, a basically their most wanted list of you know MRSA and all of those nasty things that we definitely know we don't want to see. Um, but then regarding which microbes we do want to see, the the jury's still out. So there's a lot of research showing that like increased microbial diversity can have a protective effect on the inhabitants, especially like very young children. If they're um, exposed to microbes very early, then they have a like lower chance of developing allergies and asthma later. Um, but we don't really know what that means. Like, um, is there just something about the, you know, seeing a bunch of different microbes? Is there a specific way that they need to be exposed? Is there a specific point in time? Does it have to happen repeatedly? Are there specific microbes they have to see? Like all of those questions, we still don't really have an answer to. Well, you spoke about triclosan and that it was in, uh, you know, hand soap. What, what was wrong with it? Why was it banned? What was it doing? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think there are like a, a lot of things that happened with triclosan. Triclosan has many problems associated with it. One of them is that um, we suspect that it's um, an endocrine disruptor, so it can like mess with your hormones. Um, and so being exposed to too much of it probably isn't a good thing. Um, it's very closely chemically related to uh dioxins, which are like super carcinogenic um, and can cause birth defects. And there's, um, there's been some work showing that triclosan can turn into a dioxin um, when it's exposed to heat or light. Um, and so, so that's an issue, right? We don't want to be exposing ourselves to things that cause cancer. Um, I think that goes without saying. And on the other side, if you look at just um, soap, soap is kind of magical like it's actually really good at getting rid of bacteria and um, incidentally also viruses um, and as part of practicing proper hand hygiene if you're washing your hands correctly you're washing your hands for about 20 seconds um, and that's that's sufficient that's great in fact not just sufficient it's like fabulous um, and you don't need an added antimicrobial in your soap for that to be fabulous um, and so basically we were incurring this extra risk of exposing ourselves to chemicals that could potentially mess with your hormones or cause cancer um, for essentially no proven benefit. Okay. Um, so it, it seems like, um, I don't know, I know houses get cleaned, offices get cleaned, things like that, but I would think the most intense area of activity in any building would be the bathrooms. And perhaps <laughs> that's a, that's an area to study. I mean, like, so, so I've been thinking about this recently, actually, too, you know, with all the Corona stuff going on. Um, you know, if you have a lot of people going into a bathroom, let's say an airport bathroom, you know, bathrooms never seem to be well ventilated, which I think is horrible for many reasons. Um, they'll have like automatic flushers in the toilets. So people are going to the bathroom and that stuff's probably getting aerosolized many, many times because they flush constantly. Then you go and use the soap or the hand sanitizer. You know, maybe it's cursory. You just wash or you don't wash. And then. You get these air dryers that are blowing stuff all over the place in this unventilated you know, environment. I would think that, you know, bathrooms, again, especially probably like airport bathrooms would be a, a I don't know. And they're, they're always being cleaned as well, too. I, I would think that that environment, I mean, God knows what's going on. And mm -hmm. that might be an area really rife for studying. Yeah, I think so. There are so many things going on. Um, 
so intuitively, yes, you would think that like um, bathrooms are probably an area where you really want to focus on cleaning. And so because we think that, we also clean bathrooms maybe more often, right? So, you know, if you're thinking about the um, airport, I'm, I, I don't actually know off the top of my head, but I would imagine that the um, bathrooms get cleaned more often than the seats in the waiting areas, right? And probably that's appropriate, but we don't really have a metric for saying how often those bathrooms should be cleaned and how, other than the sort of aesthetic comfort of, you know, you obviously want it to look clean, which is important. I'm not going to say it's not. Um, the other, like the sort of flip side to that is that every time you clean, you're using some sort of cleaning product and you're exposing both yourself and the microbes to that cleaning product. So in terms of the microbes, um, that sort of goes back to my concern about, we just want to make sure that whatever we're cleaning with, we're doing it properly so that whatever is left behind, because there will be something left behind, um, you know, is the stuff that we're not concerned about as opposed to inadvertently enriching for pathogens, for example. So that's number one. Number two is like, uh, I'm sure everyone has had that experience of like going into a public restroom and it's got one of those like air fresheners <laughs> that, you know, that smell. Yeah, those that, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I hate those things. Yeah, exactly. You're like, should I really be breathing this? Like, is this actually better for me than, you know, smelling gross bathroom smell? Because gross bathroom smell like smells, but it's probably not going to kill me. Whereas I have no idea what's in those air fresheners. Um, yeah, and I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm a little dubious. Yeah, so there are a lot of a lot of factors to consider in something that I think, you know, most of us are just like, oh, it's cleaning. Like, I don't know. But yeah, there's there are all of these different factors that that we could be thinking about, and I think we should be thinking about. Well, I've, I've read that, um, especially in hospitals, one of the most problematic areas are the drains because people will be on medication. Um, you know, they'll wash or they'll have bodily fluids going into the drains, and then the pee traps. That's an environment where you've got bacteria hanging out there, and then you have all these medications mixing with them, and they're all sitting there together, and that's a, a the a, a big source of uh, microbial resistance because again it's a it's like a training ground for them when they're hanging out and they're yeah they're becoming resistant so same thing again I, I guess I go back to bathrooms again uh, or in a house you know the drains may be the area that uh, if nothing else maybe they need to have uh, bleach poured down them I don't know yeah and that sort of goes back to the sort of intuitive you think like oh the bathroom is gross we should clean it. I would sooner eat off the bathroom floor than eat something out of my kitchen sink. Like, cause I know the bathroom floor gets cleaned. <laughs> the kitchen sink, like, ugh, especially anything that gets close to the drain. Anytime I have to take that drain trap out and clean it, like, oh, it's gross. It's yeah. So well, have you, have you sampled it to see what's in there? <laughs> I mean, as a scientist now you're, you have a, you know, you, you, you can do that kind of stuff and see what happens. Yeah. So I haven't sampled my kitchen drain. Um, I think my partner would get a little uneasy about that. I, you know, ignorance is bliss. Um, <laughs> but I am really interested in, in drains and faucets and basically all of these places that where there are a bunch of microbes and we don't necessarily think about how we interact with them. Right. Um, and so I, you know, intuitively, just the way you did would say like, oh, drains are probably terrible. 
Um, in hospitals, certainly there's a lot of potential for exposure to both antibiotic drugs and also antimicrobial cleaning products. Um, and so we would expect a lot of antibiotic resistance basically in the hospital environment to begin with. And then especially in those drains where there are conditions that are favorable to, you know, bacterial growth and survival. Um, whether that's the case, like it might be that there are gajillions of microbes in your kitchen drain right now, but none of them are going to make you sick. And so it's probably fine. There's just this quick factor of like knowing that they're there. Well, so what are you hoping to elucidate? The roles of the bacteria that are there naturally in places like drains? Or I mean, what are you trying to figure out? You know, what, what would be a, a practical end goal for your research? Yeah, so to me, the most important thing is to be able to say, um, you know, this cleaning product will have this impact on the microbial community. And so in this situation, it's appropriate or in this situation, it's not. So for example, there are cleaning products that are maybe um, super, super effective at getting rid of microbes, but they might have some dangerous like chemical exposures. So you think about bleach. Bleach is really, really good at get rid getting rid of microbes, but you know, nobody wants to sit around and huff bleach. That's just not good for you, right? And so to be able to say like very specifically, if you have this microbial problem, you probably want to use bleach. If you have this microbial problem, maybe you can use just, you know, soap and water, that kind of thing. Um, and then when we have specific antimicrobials, so like triclosan, for example, is very, very effective at dealing with MRSA. Um, so then you might say, if you have in a hospital an issue with MRSA, um, you know, this is how you should use triclosan to clear your issue and then minimize the risk of, risk of enriching for other antibiotic resistant organisms. Okay, so well, what's needed for you to make, uh, make a determination of, again, what we should do and what we shouldn't do in a particular environment? Like what kind of interactions do you think are really common between bacteria and other substances and you know, which ones need study? Yeah, I think so. Um, there, I think there are a lot of technical challenges that, that we need to overcome like in order to just to be able to do this research. So the whole field of indoor microbiology, okay, I guess indoor microbiology is very old in the sense that, you know, people have been growing mold indoors all, like forever. Um, and we're able to see that. Um, but our use of molecular microbiology tools to actually be able to um, classify and understand the function of microbes indoors is very new. And actually, um, one thing that we still struggle with using those tools is trying to figure out what in the built environment is actually alive, right? Um, which seems like it should be a pretty straightforward question to answer, but it's, it's, it turns out to be technically quite challenging um, because a lot of the tools that we use are based on detection of DNA, and it's possible to detect DNA from things that are dead or have been dead for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about like, I don't know, um, woolly mammoth, fossils that they're sequencing DNA from, right? We can definitely sequence that DNA, but those woolly mammoths are not alive, right? The same thing is true of microbes in the built environment. There are a lot of um, potentially like long dead signals that we're still picking up. So being able to answer that question will then help us understand like, you know, if I apply this chemical, um, who is even there to react? You know, like we can say who's there right now, but of of the 
of the microbes that we detect right now, which ones of those are alive and then have the potential to react with the chemical? So that's one of the, the technical challenges that we're addressing. Um, a second problem, which I think is maybe a little more, uh, I don't know if this is like philosophical or societal or whatever, um, I think is just understanding which chemicals are where. So we, we've been talking a lot about cleaning products. Cleaning products, you know, you have a label, you know what's, what's in it, the, what the active ingredient is, um, whether that's, you know, bleach or um, hydrogen peroxide or uh, triclosan or whatever. Um, but there are a lot of products that we actually use in indoors that contain antimicrobials, but they aren't really labeled. So for example, a lot of paints, like the paint that you would use to paint your wall, um, contain an antimicrobial to prevent the growth of mold while the paint is in the can. Um, mm -hmm. And we don't really understand then what happens to that antimicrobial once the paint is on the wall. Does it stay in the wall when the paint chips off the wall? Does that then have the potential for exposure? Um, or does it like slowly off gas out of the paint? Um, and so we actually had a whole project looking at um, antimicrobial paints and how those impact the microbes that are on those surfaces. So, oh, what, um, did you find so what we found, um, we looked at a paint that contains uh, quaternary ammonium compounds as the antimicrobial. And quaternary ammonium compounds are, you know, again, very effective antimicrobials, but they don't work for everything. They specifically don't work um, for spore-forming organisms. And what we found is that our microbial communities that were exposed to those paints were then enriched for spore-forming organisms, um, which might not in and of itself be a bad thing. It's just a really important thing to um, think about. So for example, if we go back to talking about healthcare-acquired infections and the you know, bad microbes in hospitals, um, a really big problem is Clostridium difficile C. diff, and that is a spore-forming organism. So, you know, obviously okay. we don't want to be enriching for that in that particular environment. So it goes back to saying, it's not that like all chemicals are bad and it's not that all microbes are bad. It's understanding which combinations of chemicals and microbes will be most effective for creating healthy indoor environments. What about, but, um, I know a lot of bacteria form biofilms are there chemicals that prevent the formation of biofilms or encourage them or encourage the spore state versus the active state? Yeah, so that's another great question that um, we have thought about. So it's so certainly in your sink drain, definitely biofilm. No argument. You could you, you can shine a flashlight in there and see it. Um, but there are some other contexts where I think maybe it's less obvious if microbes are in biofilms or not. Um, and certainly biofilm formation is a general stress response. So if we think about like, how are we stressing bacteria out and is that making them form biofilms? That, that is a, like a, a really important way of thinking about the problem. Whether there are specific chemicals that promote or inhibit biofilm formation, I think at the level of like, cleaning and maintaining indoor environments. I'm not sure we have that information yet. Are biofilms, um, I mean, do you think they are in reaction to stress or are they a preferential state? I would think, you know, a biofilm, I, I guess, would give like a communal uh, abilities to bacteria. So maybe it's just a preferential state, depending on where they're at. Um, yeah. So I think like naturally 
naturally bacteria tend to be present in biofilms more than like free floating organisms. You know, like if you're just like um, looking in aquatic environments, for example. Um, I'm, this sort of goes back to, I'm, I'm, if we're just talking about like a general built environment, I'm not sure how widespread biofilms would be outside of like plumbing. It's something that we should definitely look into that, that so sort of of the microbes that are living, because we still haven't answered that question, um, sort of what state are they in? Are they metabolically active? Are they sporulated? Are they in biofilms or are there, um, are there not, is there not enough density of microbes for them to even form a biofilm? You know, these, um, these questions for, again, not for your sink drain, which definitely has biofilm, um, but for like a doorknob, um, I don't think we have the answer yet. Well, it seems like the, um, the surface properties would let you know if their biofilms can be formed, how big, do they need to be a series of small aggregates of biofilms or is the surface smooth enough where you can have a big one? Um, I guess as part of this, I, when you analyze any interaction, you want to look at, I guess, use light, mic light microscopy if you can see things are alive or not. And then also look at, uh, again, the surface chemistry of it and the, you know, the roughness to see um, what will happen as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we did, um, we did some really fun imaging on, for example, that paint study that I was talking about. Um, to look at the the surface characteristics because exactly like something that we may perceive as being smooth the microbes could perceive as being like you know um, like like full of chasms right because they're they're tiny and they experience surfaces differently than than we might um, I would love to be able to just like take a doorknob and stick it under a microscope but <laughs> I haven't figured out how to do that yet um, and so then a lot of what we do is we try to like collect samples in a way that's like as non-disruptive as possible. But every time you like, if you were to swab a doorknob and then look at the microbes that you collect on the swab, that's, that's not going to be exactly what was on the doorknob to begin with. Right. Um, yeah. But, but I imagine that things like the, the surface chemistry, this, the like physical properties of the surface absolutely would be important. And these aren't necessarily things that we're thinking about in terms of like, how do microbes perceive this? Yeah. Have you ever looked at the surface of a bar of soap? <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh hmm. man, that I'm sure needs to be looked at because, you know, what if uh, that's a place where, I mean, from what I read, the surface of soap itself has, uh, you know, again, soap is very antimicrobial. And I mean, I've heard that people can reuse, let's say, a bar of soap, and there really won't be much microbial transfer. There's very little that can live on its surface. So that should probably be looked at. Yeah. So I think because the soap, um, basically, because because what soap is, um, it it ends up like dissolving the bacterial membranes. That's That's sort of how it works. So I imagine it would be very, very difficult for microbes to live on those types of surfaces. But you're also not going to like build your entire building out of soap. Um, well, actually, so. I thought, is there, a, um, is there a version of dry soap? Could you make a coating for a doorknob or a light switch out of some kind of uh, dry soap so that yeah. it still would have those properties, but wouldn't, um, you know, maybe the oils in your finger are just enough to activate the soap and to keep it uh, killing, but many people could touch a certain surface and it, it wouldn't uh, have to be cleaned. Yeah, so I... Um... 
I see two issues with that. <laughs> um, the first is that maybe we don't want to kill all the microbes, right? Like going back to what I had said before, um, not all microbes are bad. Some of them are very good. And it may actually be really important for us to have these exposures in order to maintain healthy immune systems. So we might not want to try to kill everything all the time. Um, and then the second thing specifically about surface coatings. So this, again, is sort of the idea behind making all of these antimicrobial products. So instead of cleaning, let's just embed the antimicrobial in the surface, and then we won't have to clean so often. But anytime if you were to have like a very thin layer of dust settle on that or a layer of oil, for example, like from your skin, um, you're blocking the interaction between the surface and the microbes. And so your embedded antimicrobial um, is no longer effective. Um, so there are some really interesting like new technologies in this space um, that have to do with like nano fabrication and like um, manipulating the surface properties of, you know, all of these various surfaces. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we're always going to have to do a little bit of like going in and actual cleaning, you know, you're, you're never going to quite get all the way out of it. Well, again, in your home, you may want to have interactions with bacteria, but if you're in a commercial space, you know, where people are coming and going and no one's really living there, you know, you would, I guess you could assume the people that come there, you know, they're getting plenty of bacterial exposure in their homes, right or wrong, however they clean them or don't clean them. So that's not your problem. But for this commercial space, if 500 people are, let's say, grabbing a handle a day to open door, maybe then it does make sense to have a surface that bacteria can't grow on, like you said, or, you know, my weird idea of like a dry soap coating or something on a, on a knob so that it does keep it free of bacteria. Yeah. In, in some areas, I'm sure that's you know, like if we think about in hospitals or clean rooms for like, like I mentioned NASA or, you know, people who are making, um, you know, the things that are going into space or um, other things that have to be kept super clean. Yep. Um, that I think those would be high priority areas. I think general public spaces, there's nothing that I've seen that, that, lead me to believe that having these antimicrobial surfaces in like, I don't know, your local shopping mall um, would have that big of an impact on public health. Yeah. Do you think it would have much of an impact or no? I, I, I haven't, I would be more concerned about inadvertently enriching for antimicrobial resistance than I think there would be a benefit to um, controlling the spread of infectious disease. I, I don't have any data to back that up, but that's sort of my impression. Well, I can see, um, you know, if you're going to be at work eight hours a day, that's probably a, a place to really carefully consider what you're doing or not doing because you're there all day. And then also at home, you know, if you're going to be at home, at least sleeping, you know, at least your bedroom, um, that may be a very important place or again, in your home. But if you do work at home, if people aren't working at home, you know, like nowadays, um, <laughs> that means that's probably the predominant environments that they're, uh, they're in for long periods of time. For sure. But so for example, let's say, let's say you are in this, in a certain space. So we do spend like 90% of our time indoors and a bunch of that is um, at home and a bunch of that is at work and a little bit of that is in transit. Um, if you think about, for example, your home, there's only so many people who are in there. Right. And um there's no such thing as spontaneous generation. So 
if no one in your home is carrying a pathogen, you won't just get pathogens in your home. They won't just appear. They have to come from somewhere. Um, and so then, like, even if there are a bunch of microbes in your bedroom, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing, right? And maybe it doesn't matter at all. Um, in larger spaces where you have more people going through, you have, I guess, a greater chance of somebody carrying a pathogen, and that's where it becomes a little more problematic. Um, but unless it's a place where you have, like, where you're pretty certain that there are a lot of people carrying pathogens and depositing those pathogens, I wouldn't be that concerned about it. This is why I think it's a, it's a bigger deal in hospitals, because, you know, you have people you know for sure that you have sick people in hospitals. That's 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 the point, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but in your home, you know, if nobody in your home is sick, you, you could have all the microbes you want, but they're not they're not going to hurt you. But we have dogs who bring in all kinds of microbes. I'm sure good ones. I'm happy they do. We pet them, and you know, I've read that when you have animals in the home, it's it's actually good for you. It exposes you to more microbes because they go outside and hang out you know, eat things and all that. And uh, <laughs> you also tend to share them more amongst the people in your home because you live with them, but also I pet the dog, they pet the dog. And right. So it's, it helps too, you know? Yeah. So I, I mentioned that there's this, the protective effect of microbial diversity um, that has definitely been shown with dogs um, and that households with dogs have higher microbial diversity and also children who grow up in households with dogs have a decreased incidence of allergies and asthma. That's also been shown with um, farming communities, um, but only for farms that raise livestock. So um, not like cornfields, but like cows. Um, and again, we don't really know what the specific exposure is, like if it's a specific microbe or a specific combination of microbes. But it does sort of reinforce this point that just because there are microbes doesn't mean that we have to clean them all away. We have to think more targeted about which microbes we want to get rid of and when and where. Hmm. Well, so um, I don't know. Like, in general, have you exposed bacteria to substances that they would normally be exposed to versus ones that are really alien to them? And do they <laughs> react in generally differently? Like, you know, if you exposed to bacteria to something that it, it normally would encounter, you know, how does it react? And what if you expose it to something like really odd, it's never yeah. encountered? Do you see very different behavior? Like what happens? Yeah. So a couple of different things happen. Um, first, if you, there's this really fabulous time-lapse video of the people who made it are escaping me at the moment. Um, but you can watch antibiotic resistance develop in real time. It's, it happens very, very quickly. Um, so the, the answer is if you expose microbes to things that they've never seen before, um, they may not know what to do with it initially, but they certainly will figure it out eventually. Um, and we, we've seen this, for example, um, with like chlorinated solvents. We thought for a long time that these chemicals, which were so foreign to nature, would just stick around in the environment forever. Um, but lo and behold, maybe it took decades, but finally some microbes figured out how to eat those, how to eat those chemicals. Um, so it will happen eventually. Um, it might not happen in the way that you predict or in a time frame that is, you know, relevant to what you want to see, but it will definitely happen. Um, and then specifically with antimicrobials. So we've, we've now done this 
with a bunch of different microbes and a bunch of different antimicrobials. And over and over again, what we see is that microbial communities that are exposed to antimicrobials develop different mechanisms of resistance. Um, and so I think no matter what new antimicrobial you come up with, microbes will always find a way to resist it. And the question is just understanding um, what those res resistance mechanisms are and how we can leverage them. So thinking about quaternary ammonium compounds and going like, oh, okay, so this, the primary mechanism of resistance is forming spores. So we know we don't wanna use this in a situation where we're really concerned about C. diff. Um, and understanding for the rest of the microbial community, how they're responding and how we can use these chemicals responsibly so that we understand when we are selecting for certain microbes, who we're selecting for. You know, what you should do is you should have a biofilm and expose like one side of it to a certain substance, <laughs> you know, wait a little bit and then see the other side of it, you know, maybe separate the biofilm and see if the other part of the biofilm has been communicated to to either you know avoid or adapt to this substance or not That'd oh yeah yeah that would be interesting so a lot of what we're doing now like a lot of our experiments are basically centered around taking microbes from a built environment and exposing them specifically to different chemicals and seeing essentially what they do how they react um because we genuinely don't know when we test these chemicals like when we come up with new antimicrobials we test them against, you know, E. coli or um, Staphylococcus or, you know, a specific suite of pathogens, things that we're concerned about. Um, but also those tend to be like things, these are like reference organisms that we keep in the lab, which may in fact be very different from the organisms that we find in real life, like in buildings. Um, and the way the organisms respond may be different if it's just individuals versus if it's a whole microbial community, right? That goes back to the idea of them sharing genetic material and potentially sharing antibiotic resistance mechanisms. So a lot of what we're trying to do is to understand like these community level responses and try to get a little bit closer um, to understanding what's actually happening inside built environments as opposed to you know, what I can make happen in a flask. And then also too, what about phage activity? Um, <laughs> can you, do you account for it? Do you see it? You know, what if, for instance, what if I expose bacteria to what I think is a, um, you know, is, a, is something that would kill them, but it's not the substance that's killing them. Maybe it forces them to change in a way that now makes them subject to predation by a phage that's hanging out near them. Yeah. So this sort of gets back to what I was saying about molecular mechanisms and how we're still figuring out a little bit how to use them. Um, so the techniques that we use to detect microbes currently are these DNA-based techniques tend to use um, short reads. So basically we're detecting really tiny pieces of DNA. Um, and that actually makes it quite challenging to identify phage. Um, and so I would say, uh, certainly we have in our data sets, we have seen phage in our, in our indoor data sets, but I suspect that they're greatly underrepresented because of the methods that we're using. Um, and so that's an area where I would like to see a lot of um, technological improvement so that we can have a better understanding of the role of phage in built environments, especially because we do know that phage can play a role in spreading antibiotic resistance. And so that could be a really, really important thing to understand. 
Oh, really? What, what's what's uh, said about phage um, causing antibiotic resistance or encouraging it? How does that happen? Oh, so phage, basically, um, sometimes phage take a bunch of genes with them when they go from one host to another. And sometimes those genes are antibiotic resistance genes. Well, I know that, that bacteria will sometimes, you know, use like CRISPR-Cas9 and take pieces of, you know, the virus, the bacteriophage DNA and endogenize it into themselves to use as a tool, you know, to be resistant. So you're saying that it goes both ways. The, the virus actually um, will take some of the bacteria's DNA, incorporate it, and then move on, let's say, to infect another host. And now it, uh, it may be giving that new bacteria um, resistant DNA. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And basically, so like not all phage infections are like totally lethal to bacteria and some can even potentially be helpful. So it's a whole like complex ecology that I think we're still trying to wrap our heads around in natural environments, let alone built environments. Um, um, yeah, but like um, basically phage can can sort of exist within the bacteria for a very long time um, without, you know, like bursting all the cells open and killing them all. Um, and in that process, they can bring in new genetic material that may actually confer an advantage to the host. So it's not like um, a phage infection is always a bad thing for the bacteria, which is why like understanding that ecology is um, complicated. And also it makes it complicated to understand microbial communities because again, the way that we are observing these communities, we're looking at short pieces of DNA. And so it can be very tricky to understand if a short piece of DNA came from, you know, organism one or organism two, if both of these organisms are potentially containing the same, are infected by the same phage. Yeah, it's crazy. Hmm. Yeah. So um, certainly there's some, there's some cool like new technologies coming out with like long read sequencing that I think will help with that. And I'm really excited to get to use those. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Are you doing like whole genome sequencing or are you just doing like, you know, parts of it and therefore you may be missing out on other strains that are there and, you know, what's there or not there, what's dead or alive, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So um, one of the approaches that we take that I'm really excited about is doing both um, metagenomics. So that's where we're DNA sequencing directly from the environment and culture enrichment and whole genome sequencing. So culture enrichment is problematic because, you know, depending on who you ask or how you do culture, you're getting like maybe 1% of the entire bacterial community. Um, but the things that you can enrich, you essentially have an infinite supply of. And so it's very easy then to do all kinds of different things like whole genome sequencing or, um, you know, exposing bacteria to different conditions, things like that. And I think combining these two techniques where we're looking directly at what's happening in the environment with the metagenomics, and then also with the culture enrichment, looking at whole genome sequences and phenotypes we can, so phenotypes being like how the bacteria are actually behaving, um, we have a much better understanding of what, um, what's alive, you know, whether it's got phage, um, what particular phenotypes it can adopt, if it actually can form biofilms, if it actually can form spores. Um, and so I'm really excited about combining both the very, very old culture techniques and the very, very new molecular biology techniques. 
Yeah, and I guess maybe you could do fluorescent tagging, uh, you know, so you could see things maybe with uh, with regular microscopy that you couldn't see otherwise to see if things are alive and moving and grooving. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and mm-hmm. understanding microbe-microbe interactions especially, right? So you mentioned fluorescent tagging, then you can look at, for example, two different species and see, you know, do they co-localize? Are they in the same place? If they're forming a biofilm together, does that biofilm have a structure or are they just sort of mixed together? Um, yeah. But again, all of those are predicated on being able to grow the microbes in culture. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of work to do, but it's interesting work. Thank you. Yeah, I have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> yeah, no, it is really interesting. So what's, a, what's the best way for people to learn more about what you're doing? And, you know, maybe you have some cool images they could see or, you know, how do they, how do they find out more? Um, let's see. So I'm on social media, um, at Erica M Hartman, Hartman with two N's, um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so that's a pretty good way to follow me. Um, and we also have a, a website through Northwestern. Maybe I can send you a link to that. It's, it doesn't have a very nice URL. (laughs) Um, um, yeah. And yeah, we're always, we're, we're looking at all kinds of fun chemicals, all kinds of fun microbes, all kinds of fun environments. Um, so yeah, all kinds of fun stuff happening all the time. Well, very good. Well, Erica, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.